Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, joined today by my co-host Doug Stewart and our special guest, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the Director of Content at the Foundation for Economic Education, and we are very pleased to have him back today to talk about the parables of Jesus. Jeffrey, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, and, and thanks for letting me talk about this incredible subject. So for many of our listeners, you know, are, are probably already at least somewhat familiar with sort of the background on how the parables have been interpreted uh, throughout the ancient, uh, ancient world, the ancient church, Augustine, and the, the Middle Ages. They, they tended heavily towards allegorical interpretation. And then with the rise of uh, grammatical historical criticism post-Enlightenment, we kind of got this principle derived from a scholar uh, named Adolf Ulicker, uh that parables are only supposed to have one interpretation or one message, you know, and so that was sort of trying to guard against this allegorical excess. Personally, I think it's, it's somewhat in between those things. Uh, so, Jeffrey, what, uh, what is your take and what can we glean? Uh, look, parables exist on, on, on two levels at least. So the idea is that uh, Jesus tells a story, and the story makes sense on its own terms, although it's always got a slightly surprising ending that kind of makes you wonder, wow, that's that's really interesting. It's always a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but yes, there is also an allegorical element that, that, that uh, every parable also refers to the relationship of the human person to 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 God and to the faith. So I I think it's wrong to put those in tension. Uh, they both exist. And and when Jesus taught, he wanted people to draw a lesson from both in both ways. He was a very great teacher. And and let's not make a mistake here. I mean the core of Jesus's teaching ministry was the parables, you know? Sometimes we like to look at the life of Christ and gain, uh, gain lessons. I think, I think as Christians, we're, we're, we're riveted and fascinated by the whole drama of the birth and, and the life and the resurrection, the miracles, and, um, you know, all aspects of, of Christ's life. But let's just be clear that when Jesus had his teaching, teaching ministry, he taught primarily through the parables. It wasn't through dazzling miracles. It wasn't just from walking in the water. It wasn't just from recruiting apostles. When he taught, he taught through the parables. Now, uh, he did not, this is very interesting to me, Jesus did not make these stories up. And we know this because uh, any Talmudic scholar can tell you that the rabbis have taught versions of these stories for centuries since Christ, and the rabbinical tradition is very much extends, uh, you know, uh, through an oral tradition far back uh, for thousands of years before Christ. So, um, these stories were, were already existing folk tales, 
You know, it's very likely that the hearers had already heard the story in some or another version. So, Jesus' contribution was to to, um, tweak it a little bit and and give that sort of special, I guess you could say, Christian spin, you know, Uh, to to give it a, a special meaning that would slightly adapt prevailing knowledge according to the revelation that he was giving. And, and and it was precisely this teaching ministry that gave rise to Christianity. So, it is it is why the parables are so important. You know, not just because they're, they're wonderful little stories, but because they're the core of what Jesus wanted to believe about, about God, about our place in the world, and, and about uh, his place within the economy of salvation. One of the things that you uh, had mentioned at the outset is that you think it's wrong to put intention, the the allegorical side and, and the more direct side. I mean, one of the things that Jesus actually, you know, even says is that there's a dual purpose to the parables. He says, you know, to to his disciples, to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But to, to the unbelievers, uh, he speaks in parables so that they will not understand. So you have to really be... Uh, in tune with with Christ in order to really unlock the secrets of the parables and understand what he's conveying about the kingdom, right? Yeah, and 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 in this podcast, I'm going to give versions of the parables that are a little bit uh, practical. Like, I, I what I want to do when I read the parables, what I want to, and, and I, I got to tell you that that my study of the parables was was a a very important thing for me, just as a I guess you could say as a journey through the mind of Christ because it helps you get to know him. And I must tell you, is I, I, I write every day. You know, I write every day. And my articles oftentimes after a week after they're published look a little dated and don't make a lot of sense. Five years later, they look like pieces of history. You know, um, it's, it's hard to write things that hold up a month, a year, 10 years. Jesus told stories that for whatever reason, are still amazing after 2,000 years. Like, how do you do that? That's incredible. And and a lot of the way he did it was that he chose themes that are tactile and engage our lives. They, they connect with stuff we do, things we know about, and decisions we have to make. Not just 2,000 years ago, but today. And I think that's really interesting. So, start walking us through some examples of uh, what your study is. Okay, and, 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 and again, I, I don't want, you know, when I talk about these things, I don't want you readers to think this is a pagan interpretation, but this is an overly economic understanding. Um, you know, please understand that my renderings here are, 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 are one dimension of the parables, right? I'm like, I'm not going into the theological element, you know, I mean, I'm not here to convert anybody. Uh, to particular uh, religion, I, what I'm trying to do is is show something interesting about the parables here that are strangely and interesting, I think, fascinatingly friendly to the dilemmas and meaning and drama of commercial life, and that's what I find is so interesting about it. I mean, almost without exception, and when we're talking about the parables, we're maybe talking about two dozen stories 
maybe more. It depends on what you think of. So some parables are just very short, some are very long, some are very detailed, uh, some are just quick quips, you know. So it depends on what you want to consider a parable. But for the purposes of this podcast, I've listed 12, or actually 13, we don't have to go through them all. But I just want to mention a few of them, just to illustrate just how strangely practical the parables are. And let me, before I go into this, add that if you were a dedicated socialist of some sort or another, you know, uh, and you believe that Jesus was somehow a communist, as as a writer in the New York Times said last week, okay, <laughs> these parables are not going to be providing you any support for your position. They just aren't because they're just so they're so connected with. Um, with a commercial life and ownership of property, it's just, it, and and that's what inspires me more than anything else. And I, I think I think you could almost you could almost put together a a, a rich and full uh, theory of economics based on the parables uh, alone. So uh, I just want let's just start with the parable of the hidden treasure because I I'm always fascinated by this. Right. So he says uh, the kingdom of heaven is is like a treasure in the field. And then he goes on to tell an actual story. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought the field. Okay, so this is a very short story, but you can imagine what's happening. And I've read a lot of the commentaries on it. The idea is that a guy walks routinely the same direction every, every day, I don't know, to work. Maybe he's on a journey. He's going to back and forth to some, some place where he's, he's working. He's going back to see his family. And every day he sees some treasure in the field. And, and it could be, a, you know, maybe a box, you know, something, something that looks really special in the field. And uh, he's walking through it, and he, and, but this property belongs to somebody else. That's a very important element, because it says that he sold all he had and he bought the field. That means that it's already existing private property. So this is a, a passage that he's going through or something like that, but he's on somebody else's land, and he finds an awesome thing. Uh, so he goes home and he thinks, what am I going to do to get that? He wants to, trans he wants to transfer the title of that treasure from whomever it rightly belongs to because it's on somebody else's property. There's property rights. He wants it to belong to him. But the only way he can acquire that treasure is by actually owning the land on which the treasure uh, sits. Do you follow me? So, so he goes home and he thinks, now, look, this thing is very, very, he has to think about it in terms of market prices. What is this treasure? What can it get me on, on, the, on the free market? Okay, that, that treasure is worth a million dollars. Uh, can I gather, you know, uh, but I could probably buy it for far less. Now, why does he think he can get this, this treasure for lot, far less than it's worth? And be, let's be clear, the only reason you ever want to buy anything is because you think the thing you're acquiring is worth more than the money you're spending for it. So he goes home and he, he looks at all of his assets and he says, well, look, I've got uh, 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 $300,000 in assets. Um, what if I sold everything, raised the money, and just showed up to the landowner's house? So he does this. And so now he's got cash in hand, and he goes up inauspiciously and knocks on the, uh, the, the owner of the land's door. Hi, I'm Jim. The guy has walked through here a lot of times. And I'm, really, I'm really thinking your, your property is pretty awesome, and I'd like to buy it from you. And the owner of the house says, well, what do you got to offer? He says, well, I got $300,000. And the owner of the land goes, yeah, it's a deal. Go for it. It's yours. Take it. And so then the guys suddenly got the land and, crucially, the treasure 
And presumably that treasure, I don't know what he does with it, you know. And this is where it gets mysterious because then, what is it, a treasure in heaven? Is it a treasure on earth? I don't know. But from an economic point of view, uh, it's extremely interesting because what you have operating here are information asymmetries. The guy who bought the property believed he had knowledge that the seller of the property did not have. Do you see what I mean? Like he never... He never. He didn't walk up to the owner and say, "Hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's a treasure in your field, and because of that treasure, I want to buy your property." It's not what he did. Instead, he walks up to the guy and says, "I just want to buy your property," and the guy says, oh, "All right." He didn't know there's a treasure there, and he sold it. Now, is is what to me this says is that information asymmetries are not immoral. You know, when you're when you're at the thrift store and you find a mink coat. That you know uh, would cost $3,000 at the local uh, furrier. And yet, they've got it on sale for $20. What do you do? Do you go up to the merchant to the thrift store and say, hey, you made a tremendous mistake. You need to add uh, two zeros onto this price? No. You think, this is a great deal. This is a treasure in the field. And you walk away with it. And, and according to Jesus' rendering of this parable, there is nothing wrong with that. Information asymmetries are a sign of a good and alert buyer. That's what I conclude from this parable. So what do you think? Fascinating insight. I mean, uh, you know, I, of course we can, we can look at this from the, from the theological perspective, ultimately, right? I mean, the, the, the guy is, uh, is trying to get a good deal to get the ultimate treasure, which is the kingdom of God, the knowledge of Christ, to know to know Yahweh, uh, but yeah, there's 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 sort of an ins- assumed uh, background that right. Jesus would be communicating with in a way that people would understood because this this kind of transactional example that you would find in in the ancient economy as in the modern economy, right? Uh, it was just a way of life. And That's a way of life, and there's no hostility. Thing. There's no hostility to the merchant. You know, Jesus doesn't say, "Can you believe the guy?" You know, bought the land and didn't even reveal why he was buying it. I mean, it probably the landowner would have sold for a much higher price. He doesn't go into. There's no moralizing going on. He's just describing the facts of the case. You know? One thing that I found interesting in, in the way that you're talking about this is that Jesus is very subversive in a lot of the ways that he talks. And if the the author of that New York Times article that says that you know the early church and Jesus, you know, Christians should be communists, if that were true then Jesus probably would have found a way to subvert the concept of property rights in this parable. And because Jesus, that's kind of his tendency. Right. That is, and that's what you find throughout the parables. There is no attack on, on property at all. Now, we can get to the parable of, of Lazarus, you know, where there's an attack on the rich, but that's, that's really different. There is nothing in any of the parables that is uh, bringing question to the institution of private property, contracts, negotiating skill, entrepreneurship, nothing. In fact, you would not even be able to understand these parables unless you understood something about the virtue and reality and ever, uh, uh, I should say, the the ever presence of, of commercial society. And I think that's what's critical. I mean, these communists, don't forget that socialism and communism is about the abolition of property and the abolition of the commercial society, all right? Nowhere in the parables you see anything remotely like that, quite the opposite. And one of my favorite examples of this, and I love this guy, he's the guy who, uh, who is the pearl merchant, okay? 
So uh, it's called the parable is typically called the parable of great price, and it's a very simple story. Um, now, when I was going up, somehow I imagined that pearls came from the lake, and I thought he was he was he was he was going out and diving down to the bottom of the lake and finding the pearls and then selling them again. But that's actually not what the the parable says. Um, the parable says, let's see if I can find it. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant in looking for fine, fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went and sold all they had and bought it. Now, what it means by finding fine pearls is that he's buying them on the market. And, and the Latin term here, uh, a, a merchant in the original Vulgate, goes, is, uses the term negotiatore. He's a negotiatore, meaning that he's a negotiator meaning that he's just uh, engaged in arbitrage, finding things that are too low-priced and buying them and selling them for a high price. This is his job. This is what he does. He goes and finds undervalued pearls and sells them for more of a, uh, of a market price that he can get, which he's certain uh, can be a, uh, a higher value. And that's his job. That's what he does. And it's awesome. He makes money doing it, or else why would he do it? You know, He's buying and selling. And that's great. Now, it's really interesting to me that, that Jesus is telling a, a, a story of this heroic negotiatore at a time when the ancient philosophers were all putting down the merchant. You know, a merchant, don't forget, a merchant in those days was considered just slightly above a slave in terms of social status. Very lowly figure. It wasn't really essentially into the high Middle Ages where we began to think more favorably towards the merchants. But here is Jesus, you know, in the first century telling a story that makes a hero out of the merchant. That is a really interesting, the, the negotiator. And he's, he's celebrating him as a wise and valuable uh, person and, and a model for the rest of us. And, and it's very interesting to me because... Uh, you know what? What he ends up finding, of course, is the is the ultimate pearl, the the pearl that's that's incredibly undervalued, but is of unbelievable value. You know, and and once again, he sells sells everything on a speculation. So all these people are engaged in resource allocation. You know, <laughs> that's, it happens again and again. So he sells everything, and he goes out and buys this this pearl of of immense uh, high value. Yeah, it's just beautiful, right? It's a beautiful thing. And, of course, we presume that the pearl case is, is salvation, you know. But still, even if you don't, if you're not religious, you can still gain something from that, from that story. Couldn't it be said, though, that the, the idea of finding this pearl of great price, this, uh, this invaluable item, is worth selling everything for? I mean, there's, a, there's other parts of the New Testament where Jesus says, you know, you know, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and maybe this is just one complimentary text toward that that says, you know what? Being part of God's kingdom, discovering what God's kingdom is like, uh, finding the joy in following Jesus, however you want to put the, the mission of Jesus and, and embracing and following in his footsteps, could, could it not be said that 
doing that it's worth giving up your property i'm giving a little bit of devil's advocate uh, approach there uh what do, what do you think of that take on it well i think it's fine i mean basically the pro of great price is the thing that's the, the most valued thing and what uh, what what's what's more valuable than eternal life you know but I, my my basic point is that you cannot understand the theological dimension without understanding the commercial practical dimension if you don't know what it means to trade property titles, to sell things, to to go into debt in order to uh, take a risk that you're going to get something of higher value. None of these par- the theological element doesn't make any sense. You see what I mean? If if we really lived in socialism, you couldn't understand that parable. Yeah, there's there's so many great insights here and, and things that could be said. I mean, you know, uh, the merchants even today. I mean, are not a popular, well, we don't call them merchants anymore, just business people are not a popular class with the masses, but I mean, these, it, it, it takes a lot of work to be a businessman. And, you know, I remember that Walter Block wrote that book a number of years ago, I, I forget what it's called, but it was basically like people that everyone loves to hate or defending the undefendable or something like that. That's the title, one, defending the undefendable. Yeah, yeah, one was, one was the middleman. Right, and but but the the point he makes is that the middleman has to sort through this endless sea of information and goods and services to find what is what is the best and bring it to the consumer, and that's really what trade and and being a merchant is is kind of all about. Is you mentioned arbitrage, it's moving around goods and services so that uh, it, in, in service of the consumer and in service of of the capitalist. Uh, and everybody wins in that system. But so many on the left are just, they, they, they don't understand the price system, which is, I think, the, the fatal, one of the most fatal flaws of, of socialist thinking is if you don't have the, the ability to engage in that arbitrage and say it's worth this to me but that to you, let's trade, uh, then you can't price anything and the entire economy collapses. Uh, the price system is at the core of all trade and, and interaction. And, you know, another point I'll make is that the, the original sense of the term economics is the, the ordering of the household, right? So it's, it's the good of society. It's how do we orderly transact uh, social interaction as we go about building civilization. And without that, you, uh, you, you, you can't have a civilization, no, that is that is that is so. But you, that what you just said is just so incredible too. But do you, do you see how these 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 parables reinforce this point? Um, <clears throat> another thing that you constantly find in the parables is the presence of uncertainty. Like you can't always know. Not everything works out exactly uh, as you expect. Like in the two parables we've covered, they both did something awesome. They sold all their goods and they got the cool thing, right? But it doesn't always happen that way. Which is one of the reasons I really like the parable of the sower. You know, so let me just read it here. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell in rocky places where there wasn't much, much soil, and it, it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. And other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And some seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, and 160 or 30 times what was sown. So that, I mean, so you have like five cases here or something like that, right? So one guy with seed, he throws it all over the place, 
in four out of five of the cases, it just gets eaten, it gets you know, dried by the sun, it's just terrible, you know, it dies quickly, and only in the fifth case does it become this beautiful thing. Now, to me, this is a beautiful, beautiful illustration of entrepreneurship. You know, I mean, most businesses that you try to start die. You know, they, they, they're not going anywhere. Uh, the consumers aren't there. You run out of money before you're able to market your product. The product becomes unpopular. Uh, you know, something goes wrong. Uh, and yet, and when you look at the data on entrepreneurship, you wonder why anybody does it at all. It's because of that fifth time, or in the case of real world entrepreneurship, it's like the one one thousandth time, where this, the seed falls on good ground and it produces a beautiful crop. And I just, that's, I love this parable because, you know, if you said to the sower, hey, dude, you realize that, uh, that there are five possible scenarios, four of which are going to fail? I mean, is he going to stop being a sower? No. He's going to go out there and do it. <laughs> That's who we are. That's what we do. We, we exercise courage in the face of uncertainty in the hope of finding good soil. Isn't that so beautiful? I, I just, I'm enraptured by these stories, I must say. Oh. I just think it illustrates the point of profit and loss really, really nicely. I mean, that, that's just like a really good example. And, you know, and so many of the parables deal with these, with these questions of the, of, the, of the business economy. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody knows the story, I hope, of the laborers in the vineyard. And this is a funny one because this guy is like an owner of a, of a grapevine, of, of, a, of a vineyard, right? And he's trying, racing against the clock to get all the grapes harvested. And, it, and the sun's coming down and he doesn't know what to do. So um, he sends somebody out to go uh, downtown, and, and I guess there's a bunch of people hanging around looking for work, you know, and he says, hire some of them. So he hires some of them. Then they come and they start, and they, but still, he's racing against the clock. He's got to get it all done before the end. And, um, and he, finally says, um, uh, he finally says, look, just go and get as many workers as you can. They come in in the last hour, and they get it all done, and it's just great. And now the owner of the vineyard is in a position to pay everybody. Do you know the, you know what happens? Do you remember what happens here? Well, yes. The uh, the people who came in at the beginning complain uh, that the people who came in at the end get paid the same as them. Exactly. So they're all complain. So so here's the thing. They all made a contract, you know, and uh, to get paid however much it's going to be, twenty bucks for the day. And the people who worked one hour get paid exactly what people all day were being paid. And, and so the workers who have been slaving away all day previously would have been perfectly happy with their 20 bucks, but now they're unhappy because other people got the money. So how does the, how does the owner of the vineyard respond? He says to them, first, it's my vineyard and my money, and I get to do with it what I want to do. You agreed to the terms. Uh, and you should be happy. So that's his first point. It's his property. He's the employer. He signed fair contracts with everybody. Nobody has a complaint. Then he, then he, then he goes on uh, to, to, to observe. He says the only possible basis on which you would have to complain about other people getting the same uh, amount of money that you have is because uh, you are envious. Now, what is envy? Envy means to seek the harm of another just because you think it will make you happy, you know? So you've got these, these other workers who have been there slaving away all day wanting to harm people 
that had only been there an hour on grounds that, I don't know, they just want to harm them. Man. I mean, what good is it going to do them to diminish other people's pay? It's not going to increase their pay. So the, the owner really cracks down and says, look, you should have never accepted this job if you didn't like the terms and stop being envious of others. So I think it's really great. Of course, we all know what the parable really means. It, basically, it's, it's a very interesting one. Um, because uh, essentially it's referring to the duration of our lives. You know, you think about the day of the harvest is our lives. And if we come into the kingdom at the last minute, we can still experience salvation. Or if, if we're born, you know, saints and holy and uh, live perfect lives, we're also going to experience salvation. It's not for you to resent the people who come in at the end. You know, that's the point of the parable. But I still think it, it has something to say about, uh, about us as workers. I mean, we all work in business places. Do we resent people who get more money than us? You know, are we mad because our coworkers are making more money than we are and, and, and want to sue and want to hate the boss? And, and Jesus' point is, don't do that. Don't go there. That can't, that's not a good way to think. Uh, be happy that the terms of your contract as you made it as an individual is being fulfilled on voluntary terms. You agreed to it. Do a good job. Be happy. Anyway, there, there's just so many of these things. Uh, I, I don't know if we want to bump forward to I, I really want to talk about, if, if I may... Um, there's a funny debtor story. Let me just read the parable to you because it's kind of funny. Because right now, by now, you're reading this parable. There's always having a weird ending. So Jesus <laughs> Jesus comes up to some apostle. It's Simon Peter, I guess. And he says, he gives him a riddle. He says, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So, so the moneylender canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Okay, so now, now Simon's got a problem, right? Because this is Jesus, after all. There's always a weird ending to all these parables. And, and he's being put on the spot, so Simon has to answer. And so Simon just weirdly says what I think what I would say is, uh, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled? And then Jesus says, you have judged correctly, which must have inspired in him tremendous relief. You know? <laughs> in other words, it's, it's not a trick ending. You know, it's just, it's just correct. And anyway, the main thing I like that is how much it just draws from the world of finance to make the points concerning gratitude and proportionality, you know? And, and that's it. It's just, again, another illustration and a, and a very nice and interesting, uh, funny uh, parable because it ends exactly as you might expect, whereas you kind of learn to expect the unexpected already <laughs> from Jesus. So I love that one. One of the most famous parables is the parables of the talents. Um, and this is the one that most directly teaches lessons of, uh, of entrepreneurship. And, you know, the master has uh, basically uh, uh, three servants, and he gives each servant five talents. And um, one says, look, you gave me five talents, I made five more. And the master replies, hey, that's very good. You did a great job. Good job. You've been faithful. And so, therefore, I will set you over much. In other words, he's a very good entrepreneur. I mean, he took the investment capital and turned it into wealth. Wealth! He made wealth out of it. The second one says, okay, you gave me uh, two talents, and I made two talents more. 
And so he similarly was praised. But the third one says, my Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you have not sown. You gather where you have not scattered. Being afraid, I went and hid the talent in the ground. So I'm giving you back exactly what you gave me. In other words, he created no wealth. So the master responds in a devastating way. I think it's way too severe. He says, you wicked and indolent slave. You are aware that I reap where I have not sown, meaning I, you know, I've created wealth. I gather where I have not scattered, meaning that you found value, even though you didn't. And yet, for that reason, uh, you should have seen that at the very least, you should have invested my money with the bankers. Then, at least I would have gotten back what I gave you plus interest. Now, when I read that, I couldn't believe it. I mean, here you have basically Jesus telling a parable that's dependent on an understanding of the rate of return on capital is equal to the nominal rate of interest char uh, paid by banks for deposits. What about that? That's unbelievable. So the, the guy says, look, if you can't even earn a regular rate of return on my money, you've basically robbed me. That's why you're wicked. That's why you're a slave. Pretty interesting, I would say. Yeah, and you know, I mean, when you look at the, the words of that third servant, the wicked servant, uh, and basically he's, he's levying an accusation right, against right. the property owner uh, that you're a wicked and unjust man and you don't, this isn't, you don't really own this stuff justly. I mean, it sounds like, uh, <laughs> sounds like an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders talking point. Right? I mean, that's, that's what they say. You didn't build that. Uh, oh, you, you depend on all of it. So, I mean, it's, it's the exact same thing, but it's, that's totally rebuked here. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's just it's it's an amazing parable, and it's, there's a reason why you don't hear about that parable from from uh, uh, from uh, sermons uh, very much because it is truly a story about about uh, investing and the need uh, for for resources to never be idle, but rather in this world you've always got to be growing wealth or you're destroying wealth. There's really nothing. In between, there's a lot of bias, uh, especially for those people on the left. That if you don't quote unquote do something, then your earned money, if it is, uh, I think that kind of qualifies as usury. You're you're charging interest, or you're doing oh, things that aren't. And so it's right? and what you're pointing out is that, that it's not like you're doing nothing. Those those are resources, or represent uh, the existence of resources that have alternative uses. Oh, and listen, my friends. Uh, try to read that parable in light of the very strange prohibition against usury that emerged in the Christian world between, as far as anybody can tell, between something like the 9th and 10th centuries all the way up to the late Middle Ages, the, the Catholic Church, uh, and to a lesser extent, but still, uh, within the, the Protestant tradition, um, had you know cast aspersions on the very existence of usury, which, as far as I can tell, has no basis in, in the Scripture at all. In fact, quite the reverse. I mean, Jesus himself is telling us a story that celebrates earning interest on your money. That's amazing. Incredible, right? I mean, I find that just, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, it's one of the things that's very frustrating about the parables is that there's so many lessons in them, and you wonder if anybody's ever actually ever read them. <laughs> the Son of God um, is telling you that it's a good thing to earn interest, and, and uh, we don't notice. Right? Yeah. Um, now, one of the more famous parables that you hear about all the time is the Good Samaritan. 
And this one is, you know, profoundly misunderstood. It really is. I mean, this is really a story about uh, essentially uh, the universal dignity of, of the human person. Uh, you know, the world was very back then was very tribalized. That's why I was very careful to call it, you know, a Samaritan. Uh, which nobody would help because of the tribe you belonged to. And Jesus was all about breaking down barriers, essentially. Oh, and by the way, how does how did the barriers get broken down? Quite often through commerce in Jesus' parable. So, this guy gets beaten, he's bloody on the side of the boat. So, a guy shows up, the good Samaritan uh, shows up. I, I'm sorry, I think I called the guy got the beaten a Samaritan. It was the guy who saved him a Samaritan. And he gives him money, he checks him to a hotel, and says, let me know if you need anything else. And the guy is, is healed and goes about his way. Now, uh, that's just generally regarded as a kind of a nice, you know, a, a sort of be nice to others, help people when they're in need sort of story. But there's, there's an interesting historical dimension to this that people don't often consider. Uh, in the first place, the Samaritan was traveling on the road alone, which is not normally what you would do. You know, why would he be doing that? Probably because he himself was some sort of traveling uh, merchant of some sort himself. And he happened to have extra money. Where else were you going to get that money, you know? He obviously wasn't a king. He would have had an entourage. Um, uh, he was by himself traveling. And he runs across this guy. He's got spare change, you know, to help him. And so immediately he grabs him. And then he goes, and what's interesting is he goes to a kind of a hotel, uh, like a hospice of some sort. So he knows his way around. So he must have traveled this path uh, many times, which also suggests that he was a merchant selling things. Now, here's what's interesting. He gets to the hospice where he leaves the guy off, and he says to the guy, um, if there's any further expenses, just let me know. So in other words, he's got good credit. He's got good credit. So he's a known person by the by the hospital or the caretaker or the hotel or wherever he took him he's he's a known and trusted figure so he's he's basically got his visa card with him you know <laughs> so this wasn't just some traveling charitable humanitarian this is a businessman who had good credit knew his way around and had spare change to help him so the, the the lesson to me here is if you want to be charitable to others, you first have to have wealth yourself. If you want to help other people, you have to earn the trust of others also. Um, that is a really different spin on the Good Samaritan than anything I've ever heard. <clears throat> By the way, I have to credit uh, um uh, uh, Pope Benedict for that interpretation because that that's where I got that interpretation. He he wrote a book on the parables and that's that's his interpretation that this guy was a businessman. Very interesting. You uh, remind me of one of our guests a couple weeks ago who said that the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, demonstrates that not only do you need compassion, you need capacity, and how it is important yeah. for Christians to to be uh, good stewards. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another another parable, and I know we're kind of running out of time, but I just want to quickly tell it. And actually, I, we, maybe we can wrap up with these last two things. But one is a story. I think the story is of. I don't remember the name of the. I don't remember the name of the parable uh, itself. But he, he's a uh, a grain farmer, and this is to me one of the most interesting parables that Jesus tells because it's got this wicked dark ending. You know, 
Uh, it makes me laugh every time I tell it. So basically, what you have is a is a wheat farm. Let me see if I can find the name of the of the parable. It is the parable of um, I don't remember the name of the parable, but anyway, the parable goes like this. So he's a wheat farmer, and he has a very good crop, like a bumper crop. One year, he's like, "What am I going to do with all this? I'll build silos." And so he builds a couple of silos and fills the silos with his wheat, which seems like a good thing to do. And then the next season comes, and he has yet another bumper crop. He has a great year. He's like, I can't believe this. So he builds more silos in the field and stuffs the grain in those silos. And then the third year comes, and it's the most amazing crop of all time. And he's like, this is like something I've never experienced. So he just covers his fields and silos, dumps all the grain in there. And then Jesus concludes the parable in the following way. Then he dies. <laughs> That's an amazing ending. Like, why did you do this, dude? You know, you stocked up so much and so much and so much and you never did anything with it. And now you are dead. Wow, right? That's not the way we want to conduct our lives. The, the, the wealth we earn has a social destination. It's not just to stuff in silos. It's not just to ad admire and keep for ourselves. We are tasked, tasked to uh, invest, to give, to help others and improve the world around us. That's, that's the message I take from that parable. I think it's a beautiful parable. And I, a parable, and I think that speaks to the last one that I want to mention here. Then I'll just stop my little, uh, my little uh, commentary here. And it's the parable of the rich man um, uh, and Lazarus. And it's a terrifying parable. Uh, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived luxury every day. And at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs came and licked the sores, and the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, meaning he went to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell. And this is the... This is, I, as far as I know, in the teachings of Jesus, one of the few times he mentions anything uh, like the, uh, the, 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 the very ancient idea of, um, <clears throat> of an afterlife of suffering. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in the agony of this fire. Which is where we get the idea of, of hell being covered in fire from this. Now, a lot of people take from this parable that the rich are not favored by God. You know, that they're all going to burn in hell. You know? And that's what you hear on the media every day. Oh, down with the rich. Oh, billions and billions. You know, they should, you know, we should destroy them. You know, they've robbed us. They're terrible. That is not what I take from this parable. And I think the critical line is the first sentence. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. What does the color purple represent? It always represents royalty and power. It represents privilege and position and uh, uh, um, some, sort of, some sort of ability to lord it over others and thus the fine linen. So this was not a just man. 
This is a man who exercised power over other people. He was born into privilege and exercised that privilege most likely in a cruel way. Don't forget this is the first century long before there was mass capitalism. You could not go out to the store and buy uh, 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 purple clothing. You know, you could only get it if you were uh, immensely privileged and, and anxious to display signs of power. So to me, this parable of, the, of Lazarus and the rich man is really about the relationship of all of us to the state. We are, all, we are Lazarus, uh, the powerful who meet in their, uh, in their secret conclaves to plot our future, really are the people wearing purple, dressed in fine linen, linen and living in luxury every day. And those are the people who experience the condemnation from this parable. And uh, the rest of us uh, can feel some satisfaction if we live good lives, if, uh, even if we are unhappy, even if we're suffering, even if we have sores, uh, we're going to be taken care of um, in the afterlife. You know, I actually wrote a piece recently on the LCI website that, that kind of touched on a lot of these same themes. I mean, I was arguing that, you know, wealth in biblical theology is a, it's a neutral tool, right? I mean, it can be used for good, it can be used for evil. Accumulating it through just means is a good thing because it means you've served the consumer and you're building society and all these things that we've just talked about, that capitalism is, is good. Um, but like you just said, the, the point of that particular, uh, that particular parable is that, of course, we know it's possible to be uh, unjust with one's riches. And, and many, unfortunately, are. They hoard it on themselves, and they just want to, oh, look at me. Look at how glorious and successful and powerful I am. And they will ultimately be, be brought to ruin uh, because... You know, all that we have comes down ultimately from from God, who is the ultimate the ultimate owner, and He's going to reckon the books one day. And so, uh, the 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 imperative point, I think, is to uh, I mean, it, if you are if you are rich, then then good as long as you got that money through just means by serving the consumer, voluntary transactions. Uh, but but it's not meant for you to, you know, lavish on your hedonism. It's meant to love your neighbor and, and serve society and, and grow the kingdom of God. This, this cannot be an attack on the merchant economy because literally almost every other parable deals so with, with builders, people who build houses, with negotiators who find pearls, with guys who are buying and selling you know, uh, uh, treasures and fields, and people are running vineyards and hiring workers. And wow, the, read in the right way, the parables read like Atlas Shrugged. I mean, they, they kind of do. They're all about a beautiful commerce, making money, being a good, courageous, honest person. This is, this is my takeaway from the parables at a very secular level. And at a religious level, oh my goodness, I just, you know, you could reflect on them all day. Isn't it so beautiful that you can have such powerful writings that 2,000 years would still later would still speak to us um, in, in such an elegant and lovely way? So thanks for letting me uh, for letting me go on about this. I, I just think this stuff is so immensely interesting, and I get so annoyed at at the way in which people want to render Christianity as some sort of weird socialistic ideological template. Uh, uh, 
we don't have to go any further than the direct teaching ministry of Jesus to refute that. And, and I think we just have a lot to learn from these stories. Well, that was truly excellent. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for joining us here uh, today. It was a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, you were one of our most popular guests in, the, uh, in, in your previous appearance uh, about seven, eight months ago, and I'm sure our, our, our listeners are going to love this as well. So it was great to have you, and we look forward to having you back uh, again <laughs> at some point in the future. You know, uh, it's this is one of the rare. This is a rare and unusual and beautiful podcast that 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 you would let me talk about this topic and the way I talked about it. So, thank you for all you do and for having me on. Thank you. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also support us at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.